It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty. And luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. What's better than eight free beers? That's right, 10. The festive season is upon us, and in the spirit of giving and charity, Beer 52 are offering listeners 10 free beers. All you have to do is go to www.beer52.com snooker and cover £5.95 for postage to claim your free case. What's more, do it before the 17th of December and get two extra beers. Beer 52 is a beer club like no other. They send experts around the globe to find the best beer available anywhere on planet Earth. Each month, their members receive a new case, usually from a different part of the world. Members have had beer from more than 40 countries across five continents. Grab yourself this treat in time for Christmas. You can impress friends, family and dinner guests with a cast of happy IPAs, crisp craft lagers and sumptuous stouts. If dark beer is not your thing, simply choose the light option instead of a mixed case. As well as all the delicious beer, you'll receive Ferment magazine, which delves into the beers, breweries and theme. You'll also get two delicious snacks to wash down with the beer. After redeeming your first case, you'll join the monthly beer club at £24 a month. No minimum commitment, pause or cancel at any time. Remember, go to www.beer52.com snooker to claim your free case. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. First things first, congratulations to Judd Trump winning his first title of the season, the Kazoo Champion of Champions. And of course, he's won that title for the first time. He'd lost in a couple of finals uh, prior to his victory over John Higgins. Um, It was an interesting match, I think, because it wasn't all flashy uh, snooker and big breaks, which we had when Trump lost to Neil Robertson a couple of years ago in the same tournament. But in terms of match play snooker, um, very impressive, I thought, Trump. Uh, you just see the the layers to his game now, and uh, a thoroughly deserved winner. Of course, he was three 0 down. I think Higgins he didn't say this himself, but he must have been tired after that Saturday night grind against Yambing Tao. Maybe that was a factor, but also a factor was that Trump played well in the tournament. He got better and better as it went on. Of course, he'd only lost one frame in reaching the final, and uh, was the deserved winner. Congratulations to him. I'm sure there'll be plenty more wins to come uh, for him uh, in this. 
uh, edition of the podcast. I'm going to go through the emails which have built up. There are quite a few about last week. And uh, I just want to say I, I had a great week there. Um, however anyone wants to rank the tournaments, for me, the Champion of Champions is one of the most enjoyable to actually work at. I do think, though, that the, it has to be said the standard of playing wasn't necessarily um, the, the best we've seen at tournaments. Uh, there were some good matches. Uh, we had, of course, uh, Karen Wilson against Neil Robertson. Uh, the Higgins-Yambing Town match was very dramatic. Um, the Yambing Town's win actually over Mark Selby I thought was a really good match. And uh, Higgins played really well to beat Ronnie O'Sullivan. But in semi-finals and final, there wasn't a single century break. So it wasn't the sort of um, dazzling snooker all week that maybe we were hoping for, maybe we were expecting. But you can't get that every week. And you can't get a classic final every time. We've already had two deciders this season. So maybe it was asking a lot to get another one. But uh, let's find out what uh, the listeners think. Callum Law, he said, I thought the Champion of Champions was another very enjoyable week of snooker. In the final, I think we witnessed one of the great displays of safety in recent times from Judd Trump. In the evening session, particularly, Trump managed to starve one of the all-time greats of any chances and constantly had Higgins under pressure any time he came to the table. For me, it just emphasised again that Trump is the complete player because although he didn't score particularly heavily, it was an excellent display of match play snooker. For Higgins, it's disappointing to fall at the last hurdle again, but overall, overall his game remains in very good shape. Yeah, well, of course, three finals in a row uh, for John Higgins, obviously disappointment. For him, but I think he could he could swallow this one because he didn't get close to winning it. He accepted he'd, he'd been outplayed. Tony Finnegan gets straight to the point. Saturday afternoon, not working, mouth-watering semi-final lineup for the champion of champions, and no snooker to watch. Surely a case for a two-session afternoon and evening semi-final. Got to be surely. Well, Tony, no, is the answer. It's, the format's always been the same, and it's very straightforward. I can understand people want to watch snooker on a Saturday afternoon, but. ITV have racing on Saturday afternoon. It's usually on ITV4. Now, this, this year it was actually on ITV itself. But even so, they didn't particularly want the two sports to clash. And also, next year it may be back on ITV4, so that slot won't be available. But this is not, no, nothing new. It's always been like this. People have said, oh, you know, we need a, we need a, a two-session semi-final. Well, it, it just doesn't fit into this format. This is the format. As I say, we all want to you know, watch, watch as much snooker as possible. I think the only problem maybe is that there is a sense when you're at the event you get to that Friday. I mean, me and Alan went to the Norbrecht, <laughs> the Norbrecht Castle Hotel in Blackpool, Alan McManus and myself, and that'll be next week's podcast, by the way. You can hear about our adventures there. Um, that, you know, For something to do above anything else, it does drag a little bit. Um, but as I say, that's the format. And as with all formats that have ever been for, for snooker, professional snooker tournaments, they fit in with what the broadcasters need. And that is what the format is. So it's not going uh, to change anytime soon. James Wan... Uh, he's talking about Mark Selby. In fact, we'll come to that in a moment, James, because I still want to talk about the champion of champions. Now, of course, the clothing uh, created uh, a bit of comment, and uh, this is what Damien Short has to say. Of course, last week we had Emily Fraser, the managing director of Matching Multisport, who's the promoter of the event on, and uh, Damien says, I was wondering after listening to you interviewing Emily last week if snooker is going down the road of cricket. Emily was refreshingly open in saying that one of the motivations of the T-shirts for the champion of champions was a long-term goal to have particular styles and colour of T-shirts become associated with a player, and fans would then buy the shirt of their favourite player. Nothing at all wrong with Matchroom trying to make a few quid off merchandise, in my view. Emily also mentioned the dance cam, which, having been to Bolton last night, isn't yet a rip-roaring success. Just a couple of slightly well-oiled fans giving it Dixie in the hope of winning a signed snooker ball. But it might take off. And then there's the prospect of the cheerleaders, which might finish Ronnie off once and for all. However, it seems we might see snooker have two variations. Much like cricket back in the day, 
I'm ancient enough to remember the move away from players wearing whites for limited overs cricket, and then the rise of T20. Eventually, the different variants became known as red ball and white ball cricket. Red ball was the serious stuff, the pinnacle for both players and fans. White ball had the razzmatazz and provided a quick fix for punters who could watch an entire match after work on a summer's evening whilst providing the hospitality and permitting a more raucous experience. Maybe cricket is heading for waistcoat snooker and t-shirt snooker. Uh, maybe, well, maybe snooker is heading for that, I guess he means. Uh, I think there's room enough for all of us. With the purists, of which I count myself one, having about half the events played in the format of our preference, then the other half of the tour catering for the fans who like to have a few drinks and be able to pop in and out to recharge their glasses whenever they choose to. If Emily's contemplating such a situation, can I suggest they leave a longer break between frames? Last night in Bolton, there were too many interruptions caused by fans being locked out when a frame commenced whilst they were still out for the toilet. They then caused a ruckus when security wouldn't let them back in. Thank you, Damien. Good use of ruckus there as well. Um, yeah, I mean, the clothing obviously was a talking point. I mean, it's funny because we've been asked, when I was doing this with Michael, we were asked several times about um, the clothing and we sort of both agreed we kind of like the smart clothing, but we don't really care enough to get excited about it. Um, if these t- The whole point of the Champion of Champions, really, it's a matchroom event, not a World Snooker Tour event. And as we heard from Emily last week, they're trying to make it different. She admitted openly they hadn't quite got it right. Um, the dance cam... I was amazed at the sort of the frothing at the mouth online about this purely because it's not for a TV audience. It wasn't shown on TV. It was only for the people at the venue. The idea is, and we've seen it in other sporting events, they play music, and uh, you're not forced to dance. By the way, this is I must make this clear. They don't put the camera on you and force you. It's for people who want to. A lot of a lot of people did want to, and I think Damon is right. Quite a few of them had had a drink. But there were kids there as well who enjoyed it. It only lasted about a minute and a half. It wasn't a big deal at all. I thought some of the sort of pompous comments about it were ridiculous, frankly. Um, some people were entertained by it. Some people doubtless thought it was cringeworthy. But this is the point, and this is what Emily was saying. Matchroom now will go away. They'll review what they did at the tournament, including the clothing and everything else. And they say, OK, what worked and what didn't? And what worked, they'll take forward and try and develop more. And what didn't, I guess they'll ditch. And that <laughs> seems to me to be quite responsible. They're trying to make it different. They're trying to make it enjoyable for the audience. Um, and they'll take feedback from the audience, people in Bolton. I'll tell you what, it was a great atmosphere, great crowd, really got into it. It was interesting how many were still there after midnight watching Higgins and Yambing Town Saturday into Sunday. Um, so it seemed a successful venue. It was a very lively place. And all the stuff around it, is part of that. I guess the point, though, is in, you're saying about you know red and white ball cricket. Champion of Champions is a prestigious event, and it should look like a prestigious event. So it's a question of to what extent do we want to make it look different and not sacrifice that prestige? Because there's no doubt it is a big tournament. This you know it's all top players, and you could tell Judge Trump was very happy to win it. I mean, he said about you know the, people saying I only win small tournaments. You know, well, no tournament is easy to win. Um, and again, I think that's a little sign of, I've said this before, Judd Trump, unlike the champions of the past, has so much access to people's opinions because of social media. And I think maybe, possibly has read too many of them because, uh, you know, he's won so many big tournaments over the last few years. And this uh, this was another one of them. But uh, it'll be interesting to see next year at the Champion of Champions, OK, is the clothing back? Is all the stuff around it back? As I say, Matchroom will look at it and they'll evaluate it based on the feedback from the people that were there. Um, and and that includes the players, of course, as well. But I, I didn't hear many bad comments from them. Uh, and and Jordan was saying actually, he thought the atmosphere was terrific as he was waiting uh, to 
to be introduced. We'll move on. Uh, Malcolm Johnston on Judd Trump. He said, I'm watching him turn on the afterburners in the final and the thought crossed my mind in regards to the most dominant players over the years. I know you've done various types of comparisons on the podcast, but of all the top players like 80s Davis, 90s Hendry, turn of the millennium Higgins or 12 to 13 Ronnie O'Sullivan at the Worlds, is Judd the most unplayable player when in top gear? I've been an obsessed snooker fan since the early 80s and I'm a self-confessed O'Sullivan fan. But uh, what Judd does to a top-class player when he's in stroke is truly scary. He turns a 12-foot table into a pool table and makes the insanely tight pockets look like buckets. That and his winning attitude in the last couple of years must be as dominant as there's ever been. I think all those players you, me- you mentioned had their spells. I mean, Davis was the most dominant player for a decade and so was Stephen Hendry. And there have been spells where Ronnie O'Sullivan has destroyed top players. John Higgins has done the same. Mark Selby, actually, in a different sort of way, maybe, has done the same. Uh, Neil Robertson, you know, beat Ronnie in, the, in that tour championship final very comfortably. Uh, but, yeah, Trump is, is definitely, you know, he's definitely up there, isn't he? I mean, I mean to me, the key stat actually is this. He, from his last 19 finals, he's won 16 titles. From his last 19 finals, he's won 16 titles. And if you look at the three he lost... Two were 10-9. One was the champion of champions to Robertson. Uh, one was the UK final last year to Robertson, which was which was on the pink. And the other one was a best-of-five championship league. I was talking to Ken Doherty about this last night, and he couldn't believe it. He said I, he said that he'd been in 19 ranking finals, Ken this is, or 19 finals, and, and won six. Um, and he said it's so hard to win finals because you're, you're obviously playing someone who's played well. It's usually another top player. He couldn't believe that strike rate. 16 titles from his last 19 finals. Um, so that is dominance. I don't care what anyone says, that is dominance. Uh, obviously, you know, we look at the really big tournaments. We've got one coming up, the UK Championship uh, and the World Championship, of course, later in, later in the season. A lot of people sort of say he's got to win more of those, but he has won them all already. And, uh, you know, he, he's going to be, uh, well, he's going to be favourite, isn't he, in York, I think, to uh, to win that tournament. We'll, we'll see how he gets on. Now then, let's go to... Uh, Let's go to James Wan, who, who I mentioned earlier. I've been having a running argument with a friend recently. I strongly believe that if Mark Selby had been around in Stephen Hendry's pomp, it'd be Selby with the seven world titles, not Hendry. As Ronnie said, playing Mark at the Crucible is the ultimate test. In a fantasy final, Hendry would, be, would have been aggressive from the get-go and rattled Selby with high breaks. But eventually Mark would come up with different strategies and just strangle Hendry's game, which was pretty one-dimensional. Four sessions at the Crucible, I fancy Granite over ice. What do you think? Well, I think, firstly, to call Hendry's game one-dimensional is a little bit dismissive. I mean, he was an extraordinary player, full stop, and he changed the way the game is played as well. Um, we don't know is the answer. I mean, this is a pub argument, which is fine. M- most of this podcast is pub arguments. Uh, for my money, I think Mark Selby, you know, in that era would have thrived. But I think Stephen Hendry, at his best in this era, would thrive. So it, it's very hard to say who would have, who would have won. But the one thing we do have to go on, I suppose, is is the final Hendry played against Ken Doherty, who I suppose is sort of nearer to a Selby star player. And Hendry in that final made five centuries and outscored Ken, but Ken won the close frames, you know, the frames with little clearances, colours, battles, and of course he won the match 18-12. So whether that's any evidence or not, I don't know. But um, yeah, it, it's one of those arguments that literally is no, <laughs> is no right answer to. Now, I'm not saying this podcast hasn't been planned properly but I've just noticed we have actually had another email about the champion of champions so let's go back to that and it is from Malcolm Johnston again thanks Malcolm he said after just one afternoon so he wrote this on day one of the tournament okay so obviously you know the, his view may have changed over the week but this is what he said 
after just one session of the Champion of Champions and the World Snooker Tour website poll regarding the new style polo shirts he's massively against. Well, I know snooker is a traditionalist type sport, but please let's get real. The newer type shirts are nowhere near as loud as they could have been. Peter Wright style darts shirt. In fact, I thought them quite tame, being mainly black, but surely lovers of the sport should think anything that can bridge the gap between the old-fashioned image of snooker and the success of Matchroom's other prominent promotions, such as darts or the Moscone Cup, has got to be welcomed. Let's not kid ourselves, the only thing really keeping the UK at the top of the sport is a handful of extremely talented players that will come to an end sooner rather than later, and the sport will head to the Far East. Anything that can open doors to younger players is positive. The narrow-minded fans that think this is the end of the sport need to see the light and welcome and welcome a type of update brought about in conjunction with the players, such as these shirts. Yeah, we've we'll doubled back on what we were talking about earlier here, but um, it's not the end of the sport. Anyone who thinks they're wearing, because they're wearing polo shirts, T-shirts, that that's the end of snooker, it's just ludicrous, obviously. Um, however, I do understand that people like the traditional wear. It, it, it's, it's a certain look that snooker has that gives it a bit of class, and it's the look I've always basically known, so I guess there's a sort of bias in there already. If you've always seen something, you're probably going to want to stick with it. Cricket was mentioned earlier. Of course, they did change the, the clothing in cricket. Uh, Kerry Packer in the with the World Series in the 70s, and there was a big hoo-ha over that. Oh, you can't change the whites. Now, no one really bats an eyelid. You put cricket on. Test matches, they still wear the whites, but other forms of the game, they wear different colour clothing. If the sport's compelling, then really all the rest of it is just it's just kind of... You know, stuff round the side, isn't it? I think um, I, I like the formal wear, but the, the shirts just gave this event an identity, and that's kind of you're never going to convince everybody of that. And as Emily said last week, maybe next year they can do it better. But um, yeah, it, I, I think I think it's what was interesting is the week went on, people spoke less and less about it. Um, well, they're on to the dance cam by then, of course. <laughs> now, <clears throat> this email is entitled "Niche Stuff," which is what we like, Ian Lewis. I know you're not afraid to delve into niche stuff, so here are a couple of random thoughts. Whilst watching the English Open, I spied referee Jan Verhaas, who's been around a long time, and it occurred to me, are there any stats for the refs? Most matches officiated, number of 147s officiated, anything niche like that. Point number two, I was playing Snooker 19, which I'm much better at than real Snooker, and I just humiliated Mark King in the World Championship opening round 10-0. Believe it or not, on the hard AI setting and, no, and pro guides. And then went on to win the first two frames of round two against Stuart Bingham. So 12 straight frames. What's the record for consecutive frames won at the Crucible? And for anyone interested, uh, it sat at 5-3 after the first session. <clears throat> um, well, on that latter point, uh, and by the way, that's one on the eye for Mark King, isn't it? 10-0. That, that would be the, only the third Crucible whitewash if it was a real match. But um, Stephen Hendry won 19 frames over two world championships. So he won the last 10 against Jimmy in 92, and then the first nine frames in the first round in 93, I think, against Sarinda Gill. But uh, I'm, I'm standing to be corrected on that. But anyway, 19 over two events. In one crucible, I believe the record is still 13. That was Mark Williams. Um, so I think that was 2003-04, one of those years. Maybe 2003, there he won it. So I don't have the Crucible Almanac to hand. Chris Downer would have all of this at his fingertips. But I believe in a single Crucible, it's 13. So you've just missed out, actually, <laughs> with your 12. In terms of the referee, I, I had a chat, actually, with Jan Bass in uh, Milton Keynes. I hadn't seen him for a while. He's, he's a veteran now, Jan, um, but a great referee over the years. 
there are stats for the most maximums. In fact, the referees very keenly, very keenly uh, keep up with it. Matt Hewitt on the WPBC website on his list of maximums has the referees listed. I believe Brendan Moore is currently top of that list. Um, but uh, they're very keen whenever a, a maximum is made that their name is involved. It's interesting though, I spoke to Brendan about this at the Championship League and he said, look, I know absolutely it's got nothing to do with me, the fact a maximum has been made, you know, the 147 is down to the player. But it's nice to be there for history. It's nice to be on that list so that in 50 years' time, people will look back and they'll see those names and they'll always be part of it. And it's true, obviously, if the breaks get shown again, you know, through whatever medium in 50 years' time people are watching things. I thought that was a lovely way of putting it, actually. And it made me think about maybe my own career as a commentator, some of the matches I've done, hopefully, my, unless someone wipes it off, my voice will be in future years associated with some of the moments that we're enjoying now in the game. Um, because so many of us are snooker fans, you know, as well as working in the sport, and to, to have that kind of, that presence, I guess, is, is, is a nice thought. And I hadn't really thought about that until I spoke to Brendan. So, yeah, the referees... Uh, they, they're, they're all aware of that in terms of most sort of finals done and so on I'm not quite sure I know Rudy Bounds uh, Belgian Eurosport commentator has a, a list and there's if, if you're interested in the Triple Crown finals uh, the World Snooker Tour website has a list of all the referees from those finals over the years so that's available uh, on their website uh, but yes hopefully hopefully that answers that now Mike McQuillan writes still thoroughly enjoying the podcast it makes my midweek dog walk fly by <laughs> Keep up the good work, it's appreciated. Thank you, Mike. I enjoyed hearing what the dapper former snooker player Tony Mio is up to these days. This put me in mind of a possible regular feature. I'm an avid viewer of the big match revisited on ITV4. In addition to this, from the mid to late 1970s, Brian Moore hosts a Where Are They Now feature, in which a viewer writes in to ask about a former footballer from the 1950s or 60s. Brian reads out the full address of the correspondent. Maybe you should miss that last bit out, but it would be good if you could possibly interview some former players or just dig up some information on their current status. It would be fascinating to hear somebody like Ray Reardon speak about the early days of the Crucible, and I'm sure we'd all enjoy an interview with the Silver Fox, David Taylor. You could ask him about the mystical David Taylor fan club, which, despite a couple of searches, seems to have no online presence whatsoever. Well, it's, it's not a bad idea. I think that sounds, though, uh, Mike, like the sort of thing we might do when the season is not, not sort of going on. It might be a summer project, because, uh, because there's a lot happening <laughs> right now, not to say... Uh, not 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 least into Christmas, where as I record this, there's basically one day from now to December the twenty third with no snooker, and that's Friday, the re-rig day in York. So, you know, there's a lot going on. But yes, I, I it's not a bad idea. I like to hear the old the old uh, snooker players. They've got so many stories uh, from a time when there was no money in the game and they were doing the exhibition circuit, and then to be involved in the game when it became big must have been so exciting, um, and. What are they doing now? Yeah, you know, that's what a lot of people are interested in. They're still big names. I mean, David Taylor. We, you know, we, we joked about his fan club. He was a huge name, the Silver Fox in the nineteen eighties. Uh, part of that that breed of players who, you know, just became big stars. And so, yes, I will uh, because we saw Tony Knowles on on ITV four. If you saw that interview, came to Bolton. Um, of course, where from where he's uh, from where he originally hailed. And, uh, you know, he walked in and it was like seeing an old rock star. I mean, he kind of looks that way anyway with his hair now. But uh, there's a definite charisma and presence about those guys that has not gone away. So I will uh, I will file that away as uh, maybe one for the summer. Sam Kelly from Oldham, where Steve Davis made his first, the first ever maximum, which is the anniversary of which will be in 
40th anniversary will be in January. Anyway, that's all by the by. Sam says, there are a couple of matters which I've been wondering about for some time and for which I would be most grateful for words of wisdom from yourself and or other contributors to your excellent podcast. Question one, why is it that such a high proportion of referees nowadays are A, youngish, B, female and C, Eastern European? I cite Tatiana Wollaston, who I've just looked up from Belarus. Now, I'm going to apologise here because I, I still have no idea how to pronounce this name, but Malgoratza Kanieska, that's probably not that. But anyway, she's from Poland, Deshyslava Boshilova from Bulgaria, among others. I must emphasise, I'm certainly not complaining. Far from it. They are, of course, all superb at the job. But as far as I know, there's no great tradition of playing snooker in these countries. So it would be interesting to know how so comparatively many young women from Eastern Europe came to be connected with the game. Number two, what happens to chalk nowadays? Where does it go? As I understand it, most of the top professionals now use the brand which reduces the risk of kicks, a side effect of which is that it doesn't leave chalk deposits on the cube or the cloth, evidence of which can we can all see by the unmarked appearance of the cloth during a match nowadays compared with years gone by. Players still chalk their cues as often as they ever did, so where does it go? Uh, well, on that point, I guess it stays on the tip. I think that's the idea behind it. It doesn't actually... It's not imparted onto the cue ball, so therefore the risk of kicks when the cue ball contacts the object ball is reduced. I guess that's the idea. Um, they don't seem to chalk their cues any less, though, so there's a lot of chalk on some of those tips. Um, and in answer to your first question, I mean, without, without sort of involving myself in this, Eurosport definitely had an effect because they have brought snooker to places that have never seen it before. And clearly, it's not just young women, it's men as well have seen it and, you know, want to be part of it and have gone into the refereeing game. The referees are a certain breed. They they attract a certain personality, but those personalities exist in lots of different countries. And, you know, you've named three great referees. I mean, I thought Tatiana was superb in that Higgins-Yambing Town match. It was such a long match, a lot of long frames, lengthy exchanges. She had to concentrate all night. And she did an impeccable job, no, no doubt about it. Um, she, uh, of course, met Ben, Ben Wollaston, now her husband, at a tournament when she was officiating. We'd have to ask them why exactly they got into it, but it, I can get, pretty much guarantee it would have started with them seeing it on Eurosport and just being fascinated with the game, as you know, we all were for whatever reason. And it's a good thing, I think, as you say, you know, that, that we have this representation, not just uh, from Eastern Europe, but female as well, just makes the game a little bit, I think, more interesting, doesn't it? So, uh, yeah, we'll, maybe we'll have to get one of them on at some point. Now then, uh, Donal Murtar has got an interesting subject here. I've noticed the increased prevalence of drinking among the crowd at snooker events over the last 10 years. It appears that almost all events allow spectators to drink in their seats, with the Crucible being a notable exception. Is this down to the policy of the venue itself, or does World Snooker have some input? Regardless of whether... Spectators can drink in the auditorium itself. The presence of bevied-up audience members has always been a feature of snooker crowds, particularly during an evening session when the time between the afternoon and evening has been whiled away in predictable fashion. The accumulated Dutch courage can generate a lively atmosphere, but on occasions this has gone beyond acceptable limits. For example, in the recent Northern Irish Open, spectators were drinking in their seats. As you may recall, someone got up to leave just as Mark Allen was attempting match ball in the final. I strongly suspect the person in question was answering the call of nature after either overestimating their bladder capacity or underestimating the duration of the frame. I'm no teetotaler and have no objection to fans drinking before or even during matches, as long as it doesn't interrupt the play. But it seems inevitable that a few will overindulge. 
I wouldn't like to see snooker go the way of cricket or darts, wherein the contest is something of a sideshow and the drinking is the main attraction. It doesn't matter so much in those sports if the crowd gets a bit rowdy because there's no expectation of silence, but obviously snooker is quite different. A related subject is the players themselves drinking. I know this hasn't been allowed for about 20 years. Stefan Masrosis is the last player I can remember overtly drinking at the Crucible. I presume it was banned in an effort to clean up the image of the sport, but it seems curious that World Snooker clamped down on players drinking, but seem increasingly tolerant of boozing spectators. Uh, Many thanks for all your hard work on the podcast. Should our paths ever cross, I'd be only too delighted to express my gratitude in the form of of a half shandy. Thank you, Donald. Funny enough, I did meet a podcast listener... Uh, at Bolton last night after the final, uh, who did uh, I wouldn't say ply me with drink, but I I I I, I had a, I had a drink anyway. Um, yes, which te- which maybe says something about me answering this. I think I like to see people enjoying themselves. I go back to all the stuff I was talking about earlier on. I don't mind people having a drink. You've quite rightly said though that it can tip over, um, and there's security guards there who. Um, obviously we'll sling people out if if necessary. We don't want it tipping over, becoming darts-like, as you've said. I completely agree with that. But I think if you're asking people to pay their money, come along and sit there, I don't have a problem with them having a drink as long as it, as you say, doesn't get out of hand. Um, some of the comments about the, the, the crowd I, I noticed on, on social media, which I, I, I read increasingly less now, actually, during tournaments, because it annoys me, there were suggestions it was sort of the wrong sort of people. I mean, you can't say that about people who paid their own money. They're honest people, working-class people from the north of England. They come along, you know, to say, oh, it's a darts crowd. Well, so what? <laughs> you know, they're not actually behaving badly. They're just enjoying themselves. And there were no major incidents during the week in Bolton, I'm talking about, um, you know, where it tipped over. Some people got a bit leery here and there, but it wasn't a major issue at all. The issue, actually, I think a correspondent earlier on said, it was really about coming in and out between frames, and there was a bit of noise behind the scenes as people were waiting to come back in um, when they'd gone to the bar, but we didn't have any major incidents. Um, in terms of players drinking, yes, I mean, they, they did clear it up. Of course, you can't stop people drinking before matches, but that doesn't really happen now. That's That belongs to the past. People are, are much more professional now. Um, you know, it's just not a part of the culture. Of course... So much of the, the drinking initially in snooker came from the snooker clubs. You know, you'd have a drink, you'd have a smoke, you'd have a bet. All that sort of that sort of culture culture is part of the the history of the sport, but it doesn't really apply as much now. Players who practice in academies, you know, they don't have bars in the in the same way. Um, and even at venues, you know, they, they used to have a free bar, just sort of beer on tap all, all day. That's all gone. That's all gone, long gone. So the culture has sort of changed, but um, you know. People who spend the money, spectators who come along, if they want a drink, they can have a drink. I, I don't see any problem with it, as long as, as you say, it doesn't get out of control. Now, an interesting subject here from Matt Tarrant. Diversity in snooker. Discuss. I applaud World Snooker Tour inviting Rian Evans and Yonon Yi onto the tour. In terms of disability, we've had Joe Swale play at a high level for years with his hearing impairment. WDBS do amazing work, but this hasn't yet seen a crossover to the Pro Tour. Rory McLeod is the only BAME pro player from the UK I can remember, but maybe you know others. Obviously, there are players from other countries, particularly in Asia. I'm not aware of any LGBTQ plus snooker professionals. Could and should snooker work harder, and I include the media, to make the sport a more welcoming place for diverse groups and to encourage their participation? Snooker crowds don't look very diverse, and I include myself in that as a white, middle-aged, heterosexual 
cisgender bloke. How can we become more diverse? I've invited my wife and daughters to accompany me to events, but they look at me like I'm insane. My view for what it's worth is it, it would be fantastic. It would be a fantastic boost for the game if Rian or Onyi could progress in a tournament or if Rory could win one. Same would be the case if we had an openly gay player on tour, better still in the top 16. These things will come to pass, it's progress, but the sooner the better. And anything we can do to encourage and support diverse groups in every aspect of the game, including crowds, should be welcomed. Next email, snooker and its carbon footprint. Oh, joy of joys. Matt Tarrant in Derby. Well, it's, it's a, these are good points, I think. Um, but it all starts at the grassroots, doesn't it? You know, uh, if, if, if snooker is thought not to be the sport for you, if you belong to a, mon- a minority group or if you don't see yourself when you turn on the TV, then it's sort of a vicious circle. Maybe you think, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go into something else where I may be more welcome. One of the things I've found about the snooker tour, and I've been on it well, a quarter of a century really now, is that it is welcoming to everybody, pretty much. I mean, it, it does look like a very white male environment, but actually there's a lot of women who work on the circuit, and uh, increasingly behind the scenes, you know, more sort of non-white people and, and more people from diverse backgrounds, gay people as well, uh, you know, have worked on the circuit. Um, but, of course, you don't see that if you're just watching the players. Uh, and it starts, as I say, in the grassroots, uh, snooker clubs... They're not like golf clubs, you know. You you can join them pretty cheaply, and if you've if you've been around snooker clubs, you see all sorts of people in there. But it's them making that grade to become professionals. Um, but it's not something I think you can. I don't think it's something you can sort of force. I think it's something that has to come naturally. The, the female players have been given a chance, but they have to obviously do the business in terms of results. Um, otherwise, they're going to drop off again. Um, I'm sure these these issues you know, are, are discussed at the top level. Although I have to say, I mean, I had Jason Ferguson on, who's always good to talk to you, the WPBSA chairman. But uh, the whole World Snooker board is all basically white blokes, pretty much over 50. A couple of them may be under 50, but they're pretty much of a, of a type. Now, they're all individuals, but they will have the similar sort of worldview because they've got a similar sort of background. So maybe if you want more diversity in the sport, it has to sort of start at that level. Having sort of new approaches and, and new ways of looking at it from people from different backgrounds maybe but you know we've got a lot of players from all all around the world snooker is played all around the world uh, by all different types of people um, so yeah I think progress is maybe slower than in some other sports but hopefully um, you know it, it's something that will that will change and that, and when you when you look at the sport it, it represents maybe uh, a wider group of people um, but I don't think there's any magic bullet, as I say. I think I think it, it has to sort of happen organically. And, and, it, and, and people have to believe that snooker is a sport that will accept them. And I believe it will accept pretty much everybody, from what I've seen. Um, it's a kind of crazy game, isn't it? And, it, it, you know, the more the merrier. Aaron Power um, writes, I'm from Ireland. I'd like to confirm that snooker, particularly in the capital of Dublin, is only going to be around as long as the current pensioners are still alive to run it. I'm 27... And in my experience, the average age for a snooker player in Ireland is mid-50s, and that figure is only increasing. I've also found that anyone around my own age who takes up the game quickly gives up due to, due to the steep learning curve and lack of instant gratification that snooker gives. In 15 years' time, many of the gentlemen's clubs and snooker halls will have closed, and, and the lunatics like myself, who wish to continue playing, will be renting a unit at the back of a Tesco. There may still be some talent, that comes through from the UK, but the overall standard will fall off a cliff 
with the Anbing Tao and the Chinese filling up the tour and many tour events taking place across Asia. Quite downbeat, but he ends with a fun fact. He says the lowest total amount of points that can be scored in a frame is 31, with the frame finishing 17-14, one solution. I'm not quite sure how how you work that out, Aaron. I'm not not doubting you, but... um, more information is required if you don't mind getting back in touch because I'm not when you say lowest amount of points does that mean every ball potted uh, because lowest amount of points would be nil presumably you know uh, but anyway um, let us know I, I mean the point you make ties in with the diversity email because of course it, it, it's it's not just about sort of the various uh, different diverse groups it's also an age thing as you say and if young people are not playing snooker you're not going to get the new faces, quite obviously. So that's an issue. It's a cultural thing. Uh, you talk about, you know, lack of instant gratification, all the rest of it. But, you know, we've seen, I mean, it was nice to see ITV invited along young Stan Moody, a 15-year-old who's making waves. Paul DeVille was there as well, who's obviously had a good run at the English Open. And, and they're doing good stuff in the amateur game. There is an amateur game in the UK, and Ireland for that matter. Um, and, you know, people are doing the best to build it up again. But, uh, you know... You, you can't force people to do something. If snooker isn't seen, you know, as an activity for you, then, you know, it's hard to see where the numbers are going to come from. I guess they're going to come from outside the UK, and, and that's not necessarily actually a bad thing. Now, last week, uh, our American correspondent, James Cook, uh, complained about giving commentators giving out scores um, while matches are in progress. And Neil Caesar has uh, very trenchantly written an email to agree. He says, May I wholeheartedly agree with James regarding commentators giving out the score of the other games? I also have the Eurosport Discovery app, which allows you to watch the other matches not televised. This has been rendered worthless by the continuing blurting out of the scores. Surely it's not beyond the imagination of broadcasters to give a quick heads up, or as you have adverts after every frame, why not make it practice to give scores immediately when you come back from the adverts uh, to give the scores then? At least we will know when to avert our attention if the scores are given at the same point in every match. Well, I hear you, Neil, and uh, I'll be commentating on the UK Championship first round this week. Uh, which is on Eurosport 2. So I will attempt, because uh, there's eight tables there, so there's a lot of scores to give out. And they're not all streamed either. That's another thing. But I will attempt to come up with some solution. I think I think it's important to, you know, not just focus on the, the, the one table and, and give respect to the other matches, but also, yes, to give respect to the viewers who may be uh, looking to watch them in other ways. So there'll be a balance there. Let's see if I pull it off or not. I suspect probably not. Now, Nathan Manley is writing from Australia. G'day, Dave. Greetings from Australia. First, let me say I'm a big fan of you and your great podcast. I've listened to every episode and can't wait for each episode to arrive. I've been intending to write to you for a while, but unlike a lot of other emails I hear you read out, I'm not a great wordsmith. Well, <laughs> Nathan, have you, have you not been listening? I mean, you know, no, no, no offence to our correspondence. This is, not, this is not a creative writing class. You can express yourself however you like. Uh, anyway... Nathan continues, so I thought I'd tell you a little bit about myself and snooker in my local town. I live in Hamilton, Victoria, in Australia. We used to have a snooker club which had three full-size tables. Unfortunately, there were only about four of us in the whole town who actually played or knew anything about snooker. So about ten years ago, the club decided to remove all the snooker tables and install seven seven-foot pool tables. This has improved attendance at the club, but means we no, long- no longer had anywhere to play snooker. Being frustrated at not having anywhere to play snooker, I decided to build myself a shed and bought a Riley snooker table from an old lady from a farm where I do a lot of plumbing work. Now my friends and I have somewhere to play. 
Next year, we're going to start a four-man round-robin tournament. However, it will have to be handicapped as our mate Mark, who used to run a snooker club in the UK, has a high break of 96, whereas my mate Tim has a high break of 39, and I can only boast a high break of 32. Despite our lack of ability, we really love snooker and chat endlessly about your latest podcast episodes, the latest news from tournaments, etc., and even talk about stories from the 1980s as though we lived through it all despite only being 10 at the time of the 85 final. Watching live snooker in Australia is quite hard as Eurosport is no longer offered on our pay TV channels. Unfortunately, the Eurosport player app is not available in our country, but I managed to subscribe to the Matchroom app and can watch most of the tournaments on that. Anyway, that's enough from me, but I just wanted to say thank you for your great support of snooker and your awesome podcast. It really means a lot to people like me, and I'm sure many people around the world who love snooker but can't access live broadcasts. All the best, Dave. Or if you're in Australia, we would nickname you Hendo. Regards, Nathan Manley. Well, thank you, Nathan. And that email meant a lot to me, I can tell you. And it's good to see you're getting a little competition going. I'm intrigued by this old lady on the farm who had the table. I'd like to know more about her and how she how she came by the table and what the story is there. Um, and I'm glad you're able to watch on the Matchroom app. I believe that is available anywhere there's not a broadcast. But I know in some places it's complicated because in some areas there's pay TV rather than free TV. So it's different in every country, I know. But... I'm pretty sure, in theory now, anywhere in the world, you should be able to watch the UK Championship next week. Now, there'll be people writing in saying, well, I can't, which, for which I'm sorry, but put it this way, it, the, more of the planet is covered than ever, and I hope uh, you enjoy it. And obviously, Neil Robertson, Australia's own, will be uh, will be defending the title there. But thanks for getting in touch, and uh, it's always interesting to hear you know, what people's uh, sort of scene is where they live and what, what the opportunities are to play and what little communities there are, because uh, that's all part of it. It's not all about, you know, the the sort of elite level. It's about that grassroots support and not just, you know, people who come along to watch, but people who are watching, in your case, from uh, from many miles away. Gary Richards, is, uh, this is, I think, the final email now, but has come up with uh, uh, maybe the big issue of the week. Kerry writes, In relation to the welcome re- recent reinstatement of goodbye-bye, Far be it from me to defend Phil Yates, however, I wonder if he was just bidding farewell twice, i.e. goodbye, bye, but made it sound like one elongated farewell. I knew of someone who would say thank you very much, thank you, tar, whenever he thanked you, but when said in a South Walian accent, were prone to talking quite quickly, sounded like, thank you very much, thank you, tar, important stuff, and just felt it prudent to put the other side across. Well, thank you, Kerry, but I was there when Phil did this, and we were at the Championship League, and... What people don't hear is the you know counting down to, to off air at the end of a program. You're listening to to something in your ear and it's a countdown, but you're also listening to other information. And Phil, you know, he's very good at timing his comments, so he he was timing it well. But in his mind, he was just caught between saying goodbye and saying bye bye. So he said goodbye bye, and uh, yes, it'd become an unlikely uh, an unlikely sign off for us. Um, but that's what happened, and uh, you know, there's no, there's no getting around it. I just remembered actually on the on the we had the email from Donal about the uh, the, the drinking. I, the, I I believe at the start of this podcast you can listen to me reading out a beer advert. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you know fans of uh, fans of corporate sellouts will enjoy that. But uh, I have to say they are sending me free beer. So what can you do? No, listen, we you know we're we are in part a commercial project here. You know we anyway. Um, that's it for this week. Uh, the UK Championship, of course, underway. I'll say this. I'm going to come out and defend this tournament because I can guarantee there'll be people looking to run it down and say it's not what it was. 
it is it has changed there's no doubt about it it's it's the, the format has changed the the length of matches has changed it is still though a prestigious event it's an event i can tell you every player still wants to win it's a proud role of honor to be on it's just a different event to what it used to be um but i'm going to enjoy it it's on as i say eurosport uh the first 3 days and then eurosport and indeed the bbc um for the next 9 days and all the other platforms around the world as well matchroom live and all the rest of it um and yeah, it's it's a, it's one of the great tournaments, uh, um, and I, I I prefer to look at it that way rather than look at what it used to be because it's not about what it was thirty years ago. It's just about what it is now, and as I say, a lot of people will uh, will enjoy. It, I'm sure, and I'm also going to rather preemptively defend the BBC. No one's actually had a go at them yet, uh, but I can guarantee because they're only on in the afternoons live on linear television for most of the tournament, and then. Uh, they're on red button and on online for most of the evening sessions until the end when they're back live again. Times have changed, okay, and linear television is now not the only way to watch things. Um, all of the matches on the main two tables will be available live throughout the event from Saturday when we get to the last 64. So two tables will be live afternoon and evening somewhere. Now, not everybody has the connected TVs with the BBC Sport app and all that stuff. But it is available. <laughs> it is out there. Thirty years ago, it wasn't. You were just you just got what you were given. So you can't expect the BBC to suspend all programmes on BBC Two or indeed BBC One and put all the snooker on there. But it is available. It's also available on Eurosport, where I'll be commentating, and all the other places that I mentioned. Um, no Hazel, I believe Hazel's still in New Zealand, and uh, I, I think the BBC increasingly will be using players to commentate that's up to them obviously but uh, I think I think people need to sort of remember that uh, you know it used to be very piecemeal it used to be you know here's an hour we'll see you in three hours for, for highlights well there's still highlights now but it is live you can watch it online you can watch it on Eurosport you can watch it somewhere red button somewhere it is there uh, that'll do for now. Next week, uh, as I say, you can hear my, myself and Alan McManus's trip to the Dorbreck, which was quite an experience. All our yesterdays for Alan, certainly. Um, we found a snooker queue. No spoilers, but we found a snooker queue, which we still can't quite explain why it was there. In the meantime, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. And uh, you can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Uh, any email sent in will it'll be a couple of weeks till we get to them because as I say we've got this big Blackpool special next week hope everyone enjoys the UK Championship I certainly will um, I had a great week in Bolton I just want to reiterate that um, and thank everyone at ITV Sport and Matchroom it was a terrific week and I hope that York which is a wonderful venue the Barbican and the UK Championship which is a wonderful tournament can uh, provide us with uh, a lot, a lot more excitement and enjoyment as we uh, continue this season and as we barrel towards Christmas. It's a very busy period. Uh, yes, but for now, uh, in the words of Phil Yates, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.